back to the Word on Fire show. Uh, I'm Jared Zimmer, the host for this episode. Brandon is out this week, and so I uh, took the privilege of getting to sit here with Bishop Barron on the Word on Fire show. Um, as I mentioned, my name is Jared Zimmer. I'm the director of the Word on Fire Institute. Uh, and Bishop, as always, it's great to be with you again. Hey, Jared. Always good to see you and talk to you. How are things in Texas? Doing well. It's already getting hot, of course. Uh, good, good Texas weather out here, but uh, doing really well. And how are the kids? Little Fulton's okay? He's doing good. Yeah, they're now on summer vacation and uh, going crazy. So it's uh, it's good. <laughs> yeah. So I know you you actually have several things coming up. Um, I know you've got an ordination uh, coming up, and um, you also just spent some time with uh, some Fran- Franciscans. I did. That was a couple of days ago. All the Franciscan uh, families have their novitiates out here in in my region, really in Southern California, and uh, I met with them. So the Capuchins and the and the uh, conventuals and the OFMs. And we had a wonderful day together talking about uh, evangelization, the intellectual life, and all kinds of stuff. So that was fun. As we record these words, uh, tomorrow is our priesthood ordination here in L.A. And I have the privilege of uh, vesting one of the guys who's from my region, a uh, wonderful young man. He's been out here for you know dinner a few times. I've gotten to know him. Uh, so always looking forward to that. Then the next week, I've got to head back to Baltimore to uh, the USCCB meeting. So uh, never a dull moment. <laughs> Does seem very constant. Well, in in that in that constancy, what what are you reading these days? I always love to ask you that question. Oh yeah. Well, one thing I'm listening to, you know, I, I spend so much time in the car. I listen to these novels. Uh, I'm listening to A Tale of Two Cities, Dickens' great novel, which you know, I I think I might have read it or or read part of it many many years ago, but it's basically all new to me as I listen to it. But I, I really like listening to these novels. I just finished, you know, the brothers Karamazov a couple of weeks ago, 39 hours <laughs> of listening. I'm also, I'm still reading the, that long Churchill biography. It's about a thousand pages started a long time ago. I read it a little bit at a time, you know, but I'm also reading, um, I'm finishing up Camille Paglia's uh, collection of essays. And she's someone that I've always enjoyed reading. I don't agree with her all the time, but she's always provocative and interesting. And, and let's see what else. Oh, I just got a wonderful book on um, Thomas Aquinas and the Greek Fathers. It was based on a symposium uh, a little while ago. People like Matt Levering and uh, Joseph Warwickoff from Notre Dame and uh, many others contributed. So it's kind of a high-level academic study, but in my area of Aquinas, but especially Aquinas and the Fathers, I always find interesting because it's an overlooked part of Thomas. Anyway, those are a few things I'm reading. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. Well, uh, today I, I wanted to kind of touch on something that um, in a, a recent interview that you had with Ben Shapiro, um, at one point, it, I just loved the way you said it and the way you explained it. And I thought maybe we'd dive a little bit deeper, but this idea that you'd like to re-Judaize Catholicism. Um, and, you know, it, it seems to me that there are kind of two aspects to this. And first is, of course, the, the reading of Christ. Um, but then second, also some of the kind of practical uh, aspects to this. So firstly, you know, why is viewing Christ in, in light of Israel uh, so important? It's hugely important. And, you know, this is a very old problem, uh, Jared, within Christianity, a, a, a temptation in the direction of de-Judaizing. So it goes back to the second century. And Marcion, one of the earliest heresies the church fought was Marcionism, which wanted to drive a wedge between the two testaments, old and new. Uh, in fact, even within the New Testament, Marcion wanted to rid uh, those, uh, get rid of those books that had a more Jewish kind of overtone. Um, that view haunts Christianity up and down the centuries. Most recently, now going into the 19th century and well into the 20th century, you've got a strong 
Marcionite uh, tendency. Look in someone like uh, Rudolf Bultmann, who was hugely influential. Even, heck, when I was studying Bible in the 1970s and 80s, Bultmann was still an influence. Bultmann is, is unselfconsciously a Marcionite. I mean, holds to a de-Judaized approach. Whenever you say that, you know, the New Testament is much more Hellenistic, it's much more Greek, it represents a, a different philosophical perspective. We moved away from all this Jewish business. A form it takes today, by the way, which I see almost every day on the Internet, is, oh, you know, the Old Testament God is that bad old God of violence and hatred and, you know, tribalism. Then there's this wonderful New Testament God that Jesus reveals. What you've done is you've effectively ripped Jesus out of his uh, roots. You've ripped him out of the ground. And what happens, and you see it from Marcion to Bultmann and to people like uh, John Dominic Crossan, uh, you see Jesus becoming now a a bland spiritual teacher of timeless truths. You know, so he's like the Buddha and like the Sufi mystics and, and like, you know, uh, Jewish rabbis and, and everybody else, like a new age uh, a wisdom figure. But see, to do that is to do enormous violence to Jesus and to the New Testament. Because, I mean, what do we hear constantly in the New Testament authors? is in their Greek, katatagrapha, katatagrapha, according to the writings. And they meant by that, not the writings of Plato or Philo, they meant the writings of of what we call the Old Testament. They saw him, and of course, I always, you know, I like to refer to him as Rabbi Shaul sometimes, Paul, the apostle, Rabbi Saul, again and again will say some version of, Jesus is the yes to all the promises that God made to Israel. How do you understand uh, the resurrection? How do you understand the cross? How do you understand what we, we later call the incarnation? But precisely as that, as the yes to every promise God made to Israel. When you see Jesus now as the fulfillment of Israel, you really get what's good news about the gospel. Uh, that's the good news they wanted to share. It's also why Rabbi Shaul, the Apostle Paul, typically went first to synagogues, right? When he would come to Philippi or Athens or Corinth, his first move was to synagogue. Of course it was. Of course it was because the sons of Israel would be the ones who would most readily get this message he was he was uh, offering. Now, he also intuited this, this is meant for all the world. So Paul spoke to the Gentiles as well. But his first instinct was talk to the Jews. They'll, they'll get what I'm uh, describing. I think that's very important to recover that Jewish background if we're going to properly understand uh, what the good news is. Well, how do you strike that balance between, because um, it seems like the temptation to uh, this kind of Marcionite uh, perspective is to kind of hold him at a, at a higher level almost, to, to remove him that con- from that continuity. But then there's also the, the Judaizers of the first century um, that would try to inculcate a lot of Jewish law into Christianity and things like that. So it does seem that, that Catholicism in particular does strike that balance. But in a in a daily way or, or in a, a reading of the gospels, reading of the Bible, how do we strike that balance? You know, go back to the um, to the very first council, the Council of Jerusalem, and you're putting your finger on what the early church saw as its first major uh, problem, its first major dilemma, affirming everything I've just been saying. Because I think all the great figures, you know, and Peter and James and John and Paul and the rest of them, they all saw what I was describing. You know, Jesus, the fulfillment of Israel. But then largely under the leadership of Paul, they saw that elements of the Jewish uh, heritage 
legitimately are going to fall away. Why? Because this new fulfillment has come in Jesus that has moved us beyond some of the particularities, let's say, of the dietary restrictions and the and the the laws governing uh, temple worship, etc. You see it, don't you, in uh, in Saint Peter in the Acts of the Apostles, that story of, of the house of Cornelius, when he sees all the unclean animals coming down in that vision, you know, and the voice saying, "Take and eat," and oh no, no, I, I will never do that. But then he, what he's what's being communicated there is the early church coming to realize what was really essential about the Jewish background fulfilled in Jesus and what could fall away. You see it, of course, massively in Paul, you know, that we're justified not by works of the law. And and Paul didn't mean by that, that now we bracket morality. I mean, that's, that's the trouble with a simplistic reading of that. What he meant was, it seems to me that elements of the juridical and ceremonial and dietary prescriptions of the Jewish law fall away because they found this new fulfillment in the sacrifice of the cross, for example, you know. So you're right. There's a there's a tension, and the church in its earliest phases dealt with that. Reread that little section in the Acts of the Apostles when they they recount the findings of that first council of Jerusalem, and that's what they did. You know, uh, they felt under the guidance of the Spirit that certain elements could fall away or be reinterpreted, while others, of course, remain massively in place. I would say as the permanent interpretive framework for understanding Jesus. So, yeah, you might say the middle ground between a Marcionism on the one hand or a complete, you know, uh, a Judaizing on the other hand, the church found that that middle path, and that's how they went forward. And in regard to reading the Bible, um, especially whenever we read the Old Testament, um, there's kind of reading it through the Jewish cultural lens. And it does seem that in some, even some of the modern uh, exegesis that we can read, some people purely do it through a Jewish cultural lens, and some people remove that completely. So when we're talking about reading the Old Testament, how, how ought Catholics to be able to read that? Well, again, that's the tension. That's that's always the problem. you got to find the, the right uh, middle ground. Um a lot of the, the recent scholarship that I've enjoyed so much, you know, the new perspective on Paul, people like E.P. Sanders and N.T. Wright and James D.G. Dunn and so many others. They like using initials, don't they? All the new perspective people, N.T., D.G. And, uh, but that's what they tried to do is to rejudaize because they all came of age. The men I just mentioned would all be, oh, 10, 20 years older than I am. So they would have come of age massively in the kind of Bultmann-inspired uh, period. So I think they're trying to to respond to that, but it's not to fall back into a complete, um, you know, call it complete Judaizing. But um, Jesus, the fulfillment of Israel, that keeps Israel very much to the forefront. All everything Paul says in Romans nine to eleven remains uh, uh, in place. You know that Jesus, God does not go back on His covenant with Israel, but this covenant has found a new fulfillment in uh, in Jesus. One that is is in one way utterly unexpected. Uh, N.T. Wright's so good at, at articulating that. You know, that the, the, the yes was indeed a great yes, but it was a very unexpected yes to the promises made to Israel. And, and the Christian dispensation is kind of in that space of the yes to Israel, but this very surprising yes. And to stay there, I think, is to get, is to get it right. Now, in, in regard to particularly Catholic liturgy, um, I, I love whenever you're talking with Ben Shapiro about the, the temple language um, of the Old Testament and how we need a continuity uh, with that. So how ought 
Catholics understand, particularly the Mass, uh, in regard to this idea of the temple? Yeah, and you know, I, I've been very influenced by a lot of this temple um, research. <laughs> another initial, G.K. Beale is another uh, uh, scholar who's written a lot about the temple. Um, initials, yeah. yeah, more. I should be R.E. Barron, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> but you can't get the mass, Jared, apart from the temple. And again, that's not to let's all go back to the temple worship. But it's to see this very deep continuity between the style and the structure of temple worship and the mass. The very fact that we have uh, priests, that we have uh, bishops wearing uh, mitres, that we have vestments, that we have candles and incense and altar and offerings. All of that is temple talk. Where do you see it, by the way? You see it in the letter to the Hebrews, massively, undoubtedly written by a temple priest. And you see it in the book of Revelation, undoubtedly written by someone who had deep association with the temple. Um, The mass, as we know it, comes up organically out of that interpretive uh, framework. Um. I often make that contrast, you know, uh, between the Catholic priest at the altar and a Protestant uh, preacher in the pulpit. And the preacher will wear, very often, the doctoral robes. So the robes that he or she received upon getting a doctorate, doctors means teacher, right? Because at the heart of, of Protestant worship is teaching. It's the proclaiming of the word, right? So it's the doctor, the teacher in the pulpit, who's the center of attention. But I mean, I, I could wear doctoral robes, but but when I come out to say mass, I've got the robes of a temple priest on. And now as a bishop, I, I wear the mitre, which goes back to the to the temple. I wear the, the mitre of a temple high priest. I, I swing a, a censer, you know, around the altar of sacrifice. And at the heart of the prayer, not to denigrate the homily for a second, there is, in fact, very important teaching. There's sort of doctoral work that goes on. But at the heart of it is is a, a temple sacrifice done at an altar by a priest. Um, you won't get that until you get the temple. But again, the difference is the way the temple worship has been transfigured and fulfilled in the great sacrifice of the cross, which, of course, the Mass represents Right, So the priest, acting in persona Christi, in the very person of Christ, represents the eternal sacrifice of Christ to his Father, drawing all those who are at the Mass into that great act of worship and thereby bringing us online. See, And all of that you can hear in the Old Testament. When all the tribes go up to Mount Zion, they join together in right praise. They become properly aligned. What was anticipated there is fulfilled and beyond fulfilled by the cross of Jesus, which is now recapitulated and represented at every mass, presided over by a temple priest. So that's the continuity, which is very deep and very rich between Judaism and, uh, and the mass. You know, one thing that um, Russell Kirk often would say is that the American culture, the Western culture, received from the Judaic heritage this idea of a divine law, um, that there's something that is applicable to absolutely everyone, whether you're a ruler or a plebeian, it's it's everyone. Um, And would you say that the Catholic Church also somewhat inherited uh, that as well? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, there are different dimensions of, of Judaism. I've been stressing now the kind of sacrificial temple uh, side of it. But sure, the moral law, and that's what Kirk is driving at. 
um, the moral law that transcends any political arrangement. And so all political actors are under that law. Right. It's a deeply biblical idea. Um, and yeah, that's shaped the, the West uh, remarkably, you know, and, and that certainly exists within Catholicism, you know, our, our strong sense of the moral law. So, yeah, that's that reflects a, a, a Judaizing, a, a Judaic sort of uh, principle. Yeah, and to kind of get um, also just kind of practical, especially for people who are evangelists and, and maybe have, you know, a friend or a relative that might be Jewish, um, you know, the, the relationship between Christians and Jews has had kind of its ups and downs uh, throughout history, to say the least. Um, and so what, what advice might you have for those Catholics or just Christians who, who have a Jewish friend or, or desire to have a either closer relationship and guide that in evangelization? Yeah, good. And I mean, obviously, always to reach out in love and always to reach out in an attitude of, of you know, of inclusivity and uh, to overcome any anti-Semitic, you know, prejudice. I, I hope what's clear from what we've been saying is that, you know, anti-Semitism is, is, it's inimical to Christianity, really authentically construed. As you suggest quite correctly, there's been a less than stellar record when it comes to Christians relating to, to Jews. So, I mean, once, once that's in place, this very deep love and deep friendship I think then some of these points of contact can be explored very fruitfully. Um, I've often said to to Jews who are becoming Catholics, and I've, I've known a number over the years, and I'll say, I mean, you're so disposed to get what we're about. In a way, I'll, I'll say, I, I need to explain fewer things to you because a lot of what you're seeing is deeply Jewish. Good. Let's talk about those things, those points of contact. I've been involved in a lot of ecumenical and interreligious conversations over the years. And um, that's what I, I find talking to Jews is, is very fruitful. Now, I get, given our awful history, that for a lot of Jews, and I understand it, that whenever you talk about uh, evangelization, fulfillment of Israel, they can hear oppression. They can hear, uh, at the limit, uh, genocide, you know. And I, I understand that perfectly. So we must always be, you know, dramatically sensitive to that uh, fact. But I think deep friendship and then and then explore points of, of contact. It seems to me like St. Paul is kind of our model uh, in that to go directly to the synagogues and, and speak in that temple language and, and the like. Right. And Paul, who never repudiates his Judaism, Paul doesn't see himself as, you know, converting from one religion to another. He saw himself as, no, I, I'm the spokesman for this wonderfully unexpected fulfillment of Israel. Uh, he's a he's a proud uh, uh, son of, of Benjamin. I mean, and Paul doesn't repudiate his his Jewish roots. Again, that's Romans nine to eleven. Is is the covenant with Israel remains uh, altogether valid? Of course it does, because it's been fulfilled in in Jesus. Um, so yeah, Paul would be the model. Yeah. And one thing that I've thought about as well is that, you know, the Judaic Christian heritage, right? And that they are truly our, our roots. And when you think about it in a familial sense, uh, you know, psychology is showing more and more that when the family is broken and that re- removal of roots, there's a great kind of crisis in the mind of especially the children. Um, and, I, and I think that maybe there's something to that with in regard to our relationship uh, with, with the Jewish folks around us and that there's kind of this familial relationship and that truly we do share roots. Yeah, and that's a good point, Jared, that it, it hurts both of us, you know. I, I mean, John Paul II, who in so many ways was a son of Vatican II, and Vatican II represents a huge, uh, you know, moment of, of clarity on this score. Uh, but John Paul saw that and that wonderful visit he made in the, was it the early 80s or mid-80s to the Roman synagogue? 
And that set the tone for so much of the conversation, you know, to the present day. Good. Because we're both, we're both hurt by a lack of, of real conversation. Yeah. And would you say too, that, I mean, with this rise in unbelief, I mean, I think it's, it's affecting the the Jewish faith just as much as it is the Christians, maybe a little bit less than ours. Um, and I think community has a lot to do with that, but um, would you say that we kind of have somewhat of a common enemy in this rise of secularism, this rise of atheism, and that's another place of. of Absolutely. And I do that a lot in these ecumenical and interreligious conversations I'm having now. I'll say just that. That is, we've been discussing our differences, our points of contact. Let's remember, brothers and sisters, that we have a common enemy today. You know, so the, the secularism that stands athwart any reference to the transcendent, to a moral absolute, to a sense of God, of a happiness beyond what the world can give—all of that—we uh, have a common enemy, and so we should make a common ground. One thing I loved, you know, uh, getting back to N.T. Wright, another of our initial people. Um, he has taken very seriously the inspiration from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the first now to realize what was given to Israel is meant for the world. So those lyrical passages, the beginning of Isaiah, and then kind of reiterated in the middle part of like Isaiah forties and fifties about the universal um, implication of Israel. So all the tribes of Israel go up, but it's all the Kings and tribes of the world are meant to go up. Right. And that whole idea of, of, of the light to the nations and of bearing good news, those are all Isaiah themes, um, that's deep within the tradition of Israel, that somehow the God of Israel is meant for the world. Well, N.T. Wright says, it, mysteriously, that's exactly what happened through Christianity, is the God of Israel was indeed brought to the ends of the world. And then N.T. Wright quotes, what's his first name? The great rabbi for London, Rabbi Sachs, uh, Matt Leonard. That's the, that's the doctor. Um, rabbi, I can't think of it now, but very influential figure, very important intellectual. And, and he agreed with that. Now, speaking as a Jew, as a rabbi, he said, it's true that, that Christianity has brought the God of Israel to the nations. And so he said, we Jews should have a, a gratitude you know, for that. Um, I, I think that wonderful symbiosis between the two is worth celebrating. Absolutely. And you've, missed, you've mentioned a, a few different authors. Um, are there any specific books in particular that you would recommend to our listeners and our viewers that uh, would help explain sort of the Jewish roots of Christianity, the Jewish roots of Catholicism? Yeah, some of the ones I mentioned. I mean, N.T. Wright's good. Well, he's not a Catholic, but between Christianity and Judaism, N.T. Wright certainly. Uh, E.P. Sander is another one. But uh, someone from uh, within the Catholic sphere is uh, Brant Petrie. So Brandt's books about Eucharist, about uh, the sacraments and so on, are very good about Mary, about showing these these Jewish roots of uh, of these Christian convictions. So get any of Brandt Petrie's books. Yeah. What about the other side of it? Are there any Jewish scholars that you might recommend? Uh, I'd have to think, Jared. I'm not sure. I, I don't want to just jump. I, I mentioned Rabbi Sachs, who has written about some of these things. Um, I'd have to think a little bit more about that. Well, now it's time for our uh, question from a listener, um, and this one comes from Don and Bethany Wilcox out of Phoenix, Arizona, who asks a little bit about that uh, the, the split between East and West. Hey, Bishop Barron, this is Don and Bethany from Phoenix, Arizona. We have a question about the division between East and West a thousand years ago. We wondered if you could speak to why Orthodox 
and Catholic Christianity split and why it is that today they're not able to get back together. Thanks and God bless. Yeah, thank you for that question. And you're right. We've been we've been wrestling for a thousand years. You know, my hero, St. Thomas Aquinas and his friend, St. Bonaventure, uh, died. Thomas on the way to it, Bonaventure added the Council of Lyon, 1274, the stated purpose of which was to find a rapprochement between East and West. So my point there is that the Christians have been trying for a long time to overcome the split. And the Pope at the time in 1274 brought in his two heavyweights. He brought in the two smartest guys in the West, Bonaventure and Aquinas, partially to try to solve this problem. So Christians have been passionate for a long time. Think now of Paul VI in the wake of the council, meeting his counterpart from the East. Look at Francis. I mean, he does it all the time. So you're right in seeing this as a really neuralgic point. John Paul that wanted us to breathe with both lungs, right? Both East and West. Now, why the split 1054? There's, you know, the library shelves of books written on it. Uh, Partially political, to be honest about it. Uh, Political resentments and so on and so forth. Doctrinally, I'd say authority is a major issue. And that's as old as the hills in Christianity is central authority versus more local authority. Uh, who of the great patriarchal sees has has primacy? What's the nature of that primacy? So the West gathering eventually around the Bishop of Rome as the key center of unity and source of authority. That's one issue, obviously, is the Pope. Uh, theologically, and there's a lot of differences East and West. It reads someone like Gregory of Nyssa in the East, Augustine in the West, or Chrysostom in the East, uh, Jerome in the in the West, or just you'll see these these basic differences in approach. Some of that crystallized around these, these uh, Christological and Trinitarian themes, the famous filioque problem. You know, so we say that the spirit proceeds ex patre filioque from the father and from the son. And we still say it every Sunday in the Nicene Creed. Uh, the East balks at that. I, I won't go into the details are too complex to, of, of how the two arguments shake out, but there's a difference there in, in the way we understand a Trinitarian theology. You know, they're huge points of contact, uh, doctrinally and sacramentally and all that. So there's plenty of ground for real rapprochement. Uh, My hope is that what didn't happen in 1274 could happen. And and people like Paul VI and John Paul II and Pope Francis sowing the seeds of it, I, I hope it could happen. All right. Well, Bishop, I want to thank you uh, for your uh, excellent guidance in this conversation. And um, for all of our listeners and viewers, you know, as the director of the Word on Fire Institute, I thought I'd just take a a small second to talk about the Institute. And, um, you know, if you really want to be formed in the way in which Bishop Barron is talking about evangelization and going out and and bringing the gospel, the light of Christ to the world, um, join the the Word on Fire Institute. Just go to wordonfire.institute. We've got tons of, of courses in there that range from philosophy, theology, Theology, practical evangelism, even literature, um, you know, lots of different things involved in that. We bring in a lot of experts to come and teach on their different areas of expertise. We've got a very lively uh, student forum, uh, as well as those fellows, our, our professors are getting involved in the conversations. And we also talk about a lot of, you know, current um, happenings as a, as a community and how that affects us as evangelists. And so, um, you know, just to uh, invite you into the Word on Fire Institute, again, visit wordonfire.institute and you can sign up today. Uh, and we 
with that uh, subscription, you also get a free subscription to Word on Fire Digital, uh, which gives you access to all of Bishop Barron's study programs and topical programs and the the, the, the great you know, pivotal players and Catholicism series and all of those. So, um, again, go to wordonfire.institute and uh, you can sign up today. Well, thank you all for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week at the Word on Fire show. Thank you.